If you have your copy of God's Word, I pray that you do. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. If you do not have a copy, there's a, a, there's a copy of God's Word in the pew rack in front of you. And if you'll turn to page 884, you'll find Luke chapter 2. So just kind of to review briefly from last week, we look at Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 20 at the birth of Christ. And we looked at some particulars about that passage of Scripture. And what I want us to do this morning is just finish this birth narrative in verses 21 uh, through 40. uh, Because there are some additional truths here, some additional applications that I think you and I would be wise to just know and understand and just apply to our everyday life. And in verse 20 of last week's text, this is how the, the passage ended. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. And one of the statements I made is that when you and I have a genuine encounter with Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, our life changes. We we can't remain the same. God does something in us, and the result of that is a life that brings glory and praise to God. And that's what happened for those shepherds there. Remember I mentioned to you the shepherds were kind of the the low men on the totem pole. They were kind of the lowest on the socioeconomic ladder of, of ancient Israel. And for these shepherds to be given this opportunity, this privilege to be called out from the fields to go see uh, the Messiah was was incredible. And it, and it changed their life. They, were, they would never be the same. And so they left glorifying and praising the Lord. And so uh, for you and I, the first application uh, in this chapter that I just want us to hold on to is that truth there that when we encounter the living Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, our life can't stay the same. It can't remain where it is. Something changes. Regeneration and life transformation happens, and our lives become one that glorifies and praises the Lord. Well, as we look at verses 21 through 40 today, we're going to see two additional life applications that I want you to kind of leave here with and hold on to, especially as we begin this new year, all right? And so let's do this. Let's read this text together. Uh, Follow along in your Bible. If you don't have one, the passage will be on the screen here in front. And And then we'll dive into it. Beginning in verse 21, God's Word says this. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were finished... They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle turtle doves and two young pigeons. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, 
You can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phineal of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Verse 39, when they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege you've given us again to gather here as the body of Christ, uh, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and to sing your praises. And I do pray that you've been glorified, magnified, and exalted through song. Lord, thank you for the opportunity you've given us to fellowship and to shake hands and to, to talk and to catch up and to encourage one another. And Father God, thank you especially again for this opportunity that we have to study your word. We ask and pray, Lord God, that you'd grab hold of every heart and every mind in this place. Lord, we know and understand that your word is living and powerful, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces to the division of our soul and of our spirits. And so, Lord God, we ask and pray that your word would work in ways that only it can, that it would prosper in the thing for which you have sent it today. Thank you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. And so let's, let's kind of dive into this a little bit. And then, again, I'm going to leave you with kind of two takeaways that I want you to leave here with, especially as we begin this new year. Look with me back at verse 21. It says, When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. Now, we see this in chapter 1 and in verse 31 when the angel Gabriel visits Mary. And here's what we read. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. Now you and I may think, well, all right, they, they were going to name him Jesus. What, what is important? What is a big, why is that a big deal? Why is that um, specified in Scripture? Well, if we go back over here to Matthew chapter 1, we also see when the angel uh, revealed himself to Joseph, and here's what we read in verse 21. The angel says to Joseph, she, referring to Mary, she will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus. Now, the, the name Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Joshua or Yeshua, and it means Yahweh saves. It, is a, it, it, it has significant messianic implications. And so this wasn't just a name that was chosen randomly. This wasn't a name uh, that, that was common, very common in the day. There were other people named Jesus, but it was not very common. And when the angel made this revelation, both to Joseph and Mary, and said, you are going to name him Jesus, immediately they understood the significance of that name from their cultural history. 
But just to make sure that, that, that the significance didn't pass them over, didn't just kind of sneak by, notice what the angel would say to Joseph there in Matthew chapter 1. She will give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. So just in case you don't understand the significance of this, he says, because he will save his people from their sins. You see, Jesus isn't just another ordinary name. It's not just a, a name that, that, that you and I throw around lightly. It is a name with, with, with great significance, culturally and historically. It is a name that means Yahweh saves, that God saves, that God redeems, that God rescues. And what did we talk about a little bit last week? Why did Jesus come? Well, he came to save us from our sins. And what does that look like? Well, most importantly, he came to save us from the eternal penalty, eternal condemnation that is due for our sin. He came to liberate us from the tyranny of sin. The Bible says to rescue us from darkness, to redeem us. Think about this, to redeem us from our empty way of life, to reconcile us to the Father, implying that our relationship with God outside of Christ is one of enmity. It's one that is estranged because of our sin. So Jesus came to save us from our sin, to give us eternal life, to forgive us of that sin that separates us from a holy and a righteous God. Let me go just a couple of steps further. The Bible tells us that all of us, every one of us, have sinned, and every one of us falls short of God's holiness, of God's righteous standard. In other words, every single one of us are guilty of sin against a holy and righteous God. So what does that mean? Well, it tells us that Jesus Christ came to save us, to save me and to save you from our sins, from our rebellion against a holy and righteous God. Maybe you're here today, and you've never surrendered in faith to Jesus Christ. You, you, you've never come before him humbled and broken by your sin to say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Be my Savior. Here's my life, Lord. Take it. Maybe today, by God's grace, maybe today is your day of salvation. Maybe today is the day when you surrender in faith. And say yes to Jesus Christ, the one they named Jesus. Yeshua, y Yahweh saves, the Savior of the world. Let's keep going and look, look at the rest of this text. We, we come over here in, in verse 24 and we're told that Joseph and Mary brought a sacrifice, a pair of turtle tubs or two young pigeons. Now, I'm not going to get into the Old Testament law of sacrifice and offering, but if you look in Leviticus chapter 12 and verse 8, God said that when a husband and wife have a child, there's a, there's a, a time of purification after which they are to bring to the tabernacle or the temple an offering, a, a thanks offering, if you will. Now, here's what's interesting. It calls for a male lamb. But then Scripture goes on to say, however, if you don't have the sufficient means for a lamb, you can bring a turtle dove or you can bring pigeons. And then it even goes further in Leviticus chapter 5 to tell us if you don't have the means to, to bring a, pair, a, a, a turtle doves or pigeons, you can even bring some flour. And here's what this text reminds us of. It reminds us that Joseph and Mary were not a well-to-do couple. They were an average middle-class Hebrew family. 
Again, a further reminder, like we talked about last week, that Jesus was not born under this great pomp and circumstance. He wasn't born to royalty. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a humble, lowly manger to a very ordinary Hebrew family that God was going to do extraordinary things through, in and through. And that's good news for you and me today. God is not looking for the extraordinary. He's looking for those who are humble before him and are willing to be used by him. Let's keep going. Now look at the beginning of verse 25. So Jesus is roughly a week old. It says, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. Now, we don't know much about Simeon. As a matter of fact, this is the only text in the Bible that we have about Simeon. But what we do have, we can learn a good bit from. And look, first of all, we see here in verse 25, he was righteous and devout. That word righteous can also be translated as just. And it refers to the fact that he had a right relationship with God. Simeon was a man of great faith, a man who, who knew the Lord and obeyed the Lord and served the Lord and worshiped the Lord. His life was in lockstep with the Lord. But not only was he righteous and just, it says he was devout. That is a word that means God-fearing or reverend. Simeon was a man you and I would love to just sit around and just talk with, talk about the things of God with, and listen to his wisdom and listen to his understanding of truth and of Scripture. He was a godly man, a righteous man, a devout man, a God-fearing man. And notice what we read here. The Holy Spirit of God was working mightily in his life. Friends, this is a good reminder for us. If we really want the Holy Spirit of God to move and work mightily in each of our lives, and you and I also need to seek the Lord like Simeon. We need to go after the Lord like Simeon. We need to, to, to live righteously and devoutly before the Lord. And so the Spirit guides him into the temple. And he enters the temple. And at that moment when Joseph and Mary brought Jesus into that temple to dedicate him to the Lord, the Holy Spirit made, it, made Simeon aware that this, this is the Messiah. This, this is the one I told you that you would live to see this day. Now, what we don't know, we don't know Simeon's age. And we don't know how long ago the Holy Spirit had revealed to him this truth that he would see the Messiah but here's what we do understand. He had been looking forward to it. He'd been living for this moment. How do we know that? Look at, it, look at the language beginning in verse 20, 29. He says, now, Master, now, God Almighty, now, Father God, you can dismiss your servant. You, you can take my life. Why? Verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. 
Simeon says, okay, Lord, my life's full. My life's complete. I've seen your Messiah. I've seen the Savior that you promised long ago, that you even spoke about in Genesis chapter 3, and that all the prophets and all the Psalms of David and all the wisdom literature and everything else pointing to, I have seen your Messiah, Lord. My life's full. My life's complete. Isn't that something? He had been longing for, he had been looking forward to God's promised Messiah. Now, look at verse 30 real quick. This is a good reminder for all of us today. Simeon says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Do you find that pronoun odd? He doesn't say, my eyes have seen my salvation. He says, your salvation It's a good reminder to us this morning that salvation belongs to the Lord. The work of redemption, the work of salvation, the work of rescue is a work of mighty, almighty God. It may hurt some of your feelings and it may uh, attack your, your personal pride, but understand this, you and I don't do anything to be saved. We don't bring anything to the altar and say, okay, God, look at this, look at who I am, look at what I've done, save me. It's entirely a work of the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, notice what we see in verse 31. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples. I love that word all. It's a simple word, but, but, but it means what it says, all peoples. Your salvation have been, has been prepared in the presence of all peoples. What does it say? A light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. In chapter in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the salvation to all who believe, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Well, we understand who the Jews are, right? Those are the men and women of Hebrew descent, the, the children of Abraham. But who are the Gentiles? Here's the easy way to remember. The Gentiles are everybody that aren't Jews. That's everybody else. That's who are the Gentiles, okay? And so what do we understand here? That salvation is for the Jew and for the Gentile, for all peoples. For all peoples. No one is excluded from God's offer of salvation. And again, like I mentioned earlier, maybe you're here today and you've never made a personal decision to surrender in faith to Jesus Christ. And my question to you would be, why not? It is for you. Jesus Christ left heaven. He came to this earth. He wore the flesh of man. He walked our streets. He ate our food. He spoke our language. He wore our clothes so that he could die on a cross, so that he could pay the penalty of your sin and my sin, and so that you and I might be redeemed, that we might be saved from from the penalty of our sin. And so my question would be to you, why not? Why not say yes to Jesus Christ? For it, it, is, it is for you. The gospel is for you. No one's excluded. Pastor, you, you don't understand the road I've traveled. You don't understand the decisions I've made. I don't need to. God knows and understands, and he still died for you. He still died to pay the penalty of your sin because he loves you, and he wants you to know him, and he wants you to spend eternity with him. The gospel is for you. Now let's keep going down. Look with me beginning at verse 36. 
We see a second, kind of the second main character of this passage. The Bible says there was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. Now, depending on the translation, and we are not certain of how the, the, the exact way to properly translate the original Greek, but here's what we understand about Anna. If we read this as it's written, um, she was married for seven years, and she's been a widow for 84, and if I do my math right, that's 91 years. So let's just say she got married at the age of 15, okay, which would not have been uncommon. At this point, she's 106 years old. Now, some translations, some commentaries argue that, it, that it, the way it's written, she's only 84 years old. Either way, okay? This is a woman who's well advanced in years, but notice what we read about her. It says, she did not leave the temple serving God. We could also say worshiping God night and day with fasting and prayers. This was a godly and a righteous woman who lived her life to worship the Lord. She was a humble woman, much like Simeon. In Isaiah 66, in verse 2, the Bible says this. I, I love this verse of Scripture. Just write it down. Go back and look at it a little bit later on. Isaiah 66, in verse 2. God says this. This is the Lord's declaration. I will look favorably on this kind of person. How many of you want God to look favorably upon you? I guess a better question I should say. Raise your hand if you want, don't want God to look favorably upon your life. Right? I don't know that anybody would, would admit to that. He says, I will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and watch this, trembles at my word. Think about those three statements. God says, I will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. That, that, that is a beautiful description of Anna, this godly woman who day after day worshiped the Lord with fasting and with prayers. Now look at verse 38. At, at that very moment, at the moment that Joseph and Mary brought Jesus into the temple, at the moment that Simeon declares him and understands him to be the Messiah, what does it say? She came up and she began to thank God and to speak about him to all who are looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, there's two phrases in this text that I just want to bring to your attention. The first is there in verse 38, the redemption of Jerusalem. And then the second we saw in verse 25, it says, this man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation. So what does it mean? What does the phrase Israel's consolation and the redemption of Jerusalem refer to? What, what does that mean? Th those are two phrases in the original language that point to the Messiah. In other words, that's another name, an another description of the Messiah. You, you and I could read it this way. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's Messiah, or we could read verse 38 this way, and who were looking forward to the Messiah of Jerusalem, or God's Messiah. So here's a woman 
who spends her days and her nights in the temple in fasting and in prayer, worshiping the Lord, longing for the Messiah. And what happens when, when the Messiah is presented there? She begins to, to thank God, to, to praise Him, and to glory in Him, and then to speak about Him to all who are looking forward to the redemption, to the Messiah. And then in verses 39 through 40, we see where they return to Nazareth. Remember, it's about an 80-mile journey from Jerusalem to Nazareth. It would have taken about six-plus six days. On average, they would travel maybe 12 miles a day. So Joseph and Mary, they came to Nazareth from, uh, they came to Bethlehem from Nazareth well into her pregnancy. She gave birth. A few days later, a week or so later, they're going to return to Nazareth with this newborn child. It's going to take about a week. We see where he became strong. He was filled with wisdom. God's grace was on him. Then something interesting, and we're not going to get into it this morning, but there's a 12-year gap between verse 40 and verse 41. We know nothing of Jesus' childhood. Nothing. In verse 41, we see that when he was 12 years old, they went back to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. So what do we take away from the rest, from the conclusion of the birth narrative of Christ? Number one, we see in both Simeon and Anna, we see two individuals, number one, who were godly, who were righteous, who were devout, and here's what sets them apart. They were looking forward to the Messiah. They were longing for the Messiah. We read that there in verse 25, and we read it again there in verse 38. They, they, were, they were looking forward to God's Messiah. Now, that is Jesus' first coming. So what do you and I do with that today? Well, we ought to, we, we, we ought to pattern our life, uh, at least this part of our life, after Simeon and Anna. You and I, listen, we ought to be looking forward to the Messiah. We ought to be looking forward to the return of Christ. We ought to pray expectantly for the return of Christ. We ought to pray with great anticipation that Christ would return. And I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you this morning as we begin a new year, as the calendar flips to 2024. I want to encourage you to do this. This is the first application from this text, that we begin to long and look forward to Christ's return that we begin to pray for Christ to return. How, how different would our lives be if we knew he was coming back this afternoon or tomorrow or next week or next month? It'd be dramatically different, right? Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that, we're gonna, that we know when he's coming, that we, we can figure this out. We can't. And so you and I live each day longing for the Messiah, looking forward to the Messiah, anticipating His return. Uh, li li listen carefully from 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8. L listen to this admonition for us today as we look forward to Christ's return. In 2 Timothy 4 and verse 8, we read this. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, listen to this, but to all those who have loved his appearing. 
The Bible tells us there's eternal reward for us to live with anticipation and expectation, to look forward to the return of Christ. So I want to challenge you and I want to challenge myself that as we, as we wake up even tomorrow morning, as we begin this new year, let's look forward to Christ's return. Let's, let's pray with expectation that Christ would return, that he would come again, that he would establish his kingdom, and that all would be made, all would be renewed in the way God made it in the beginning. That's the first application. Here's the second. Look with me again in verse 38. At that very moment, she, Anna, came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all, there's that word all again, who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Whether she's 84 or 106 or whatever she may be, what does it say? She began to speak about him. She was unashamed to tell the good news of Christ. She was unashamed to tell the world the gospel. Here's what I want to challenge you. Here's the second application as we begin this new year. Let's make 2024 a year that you and I go and tell like never before. Let's make it more of a priority in our personal lives and in the life of this church that you and I boldly and unashamedly and courageously share the good news of Christ with those in our sphere of influence and those to the ends of the earth. Let's be like Anna. Let's tell anyone who will listen the good news of Christ. Every single one of us, none of us are exempt. Every single one of us have, 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 have individuals in our sphere of influence that don't know Christ as their Savior. It could be a family member, it could be a neighbor, it could be a co-worker, it could be a classmate. Whatever it may be, every single one of us has at least one person in our sphere of influence that doesn't know Christ. Church, let's make it a priority this year to, one, pray for their salvation, and two, to share the gospel, to give them the opportunity to say yes to Jesus. Those are the two applications. Number one, that we live with great expectation and anticipation for the return, that we long to see Jesus. And number two, that we go and tell, that we engage in sharing the gospel like never before. Let's pray together this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you again for this day that you've given us. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to study your word together. And I pray, Lord God, that you'd grab hold of our hearts and our minds. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to mold us and shape us, fashion us into the men and women you've created us to be, the men and women you have gifted us to be, the men and women you have redeemed us to be as your children, as your ambassadors to the nations. And Father God, I humbly ask and pray if there is any individual in this room or watching online today that does not know Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. They, they have not made a personal decision, Lord, to say yes to Jesus. I ask and pray that right now in these moments they would cry out to Jesus for salvation. That in this place they would humble themselves before you. They would recognize and admit to you they are a sinner in need of a Savior and cry out to Jesus. Father God, work in their life. Draw them to Jesus today. 
Father God, for those of us that do know Christ as Savior, number one, thank you for saving us. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for rescuing us, Lord. Would you please continue to work in us for your glory and for your honor? Lord God, let our lives look more like Simeon and Anna a year from now than they do today. Let us follow their model of righteousness and godliness and holiness and and a life just devoted to your worship and to your honor, Lord. Grow us and to be more like Christ. Lord Jesus, I thank you again for this day you've given us. Thank you for this year called 2023. Thank you for the new year, Lord. Work mightily for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.